Welcome to the IF Global Regulatory Update Podcast. I'm Martin Boer, Senior Director of Regulatory Affairs at the Institute of International Finance in Washington, D.C. For this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Derek Vadala, who is Chief Risk Officer at BitSight in New York. BitSight offers cybersecurity ratings and analytics to help organizations manage their own cybersecurity performance to mitigate third-party risk, to underwrite cyber insurance policies, conduct financial diligence, and improve national security. Founded more than 10 years ago in 2011, BitSight has 2,500 customers around the world and is partially owned by IF member Moody's Corporation, where Derek also previously focused on cyber over the last two decades. So a lot of insights to unpack regarding the global cyber landscape. It's a great pleasure to have Derek here today to explain how cybersecurity ratings work and what he's currently seeing across the cyber landscape and how firms are addressing cyber risk. So Derek, it's great to see you. Welcome to the pod. I hope all's well with you. Doing very well, Martin, and good to see you again. Why don't we start with BitSight, which I think is a unique and important business proposition and, and really filling a hole in the market there. So can you explain BitSight's cyber risk rating offering? How does it work? What do the ratings mean? And what can companies do with this kind of information? Sure, I'd be happy to, Martin. So BitSight is a cybersecurity ratings and analytics company. And one of the primary things it does is produce a cybersecurity rating about companies and countries and other organizations that is a measure of security performance over time. And so what a lot of people do is they use that rating for one of our core cases, which is third-party risk management. That was really the original use case that developed around the cybersecurity rating. And companies and other organizations use that to really do a comparative view of the risk that they're taking on by using individual vendors and third parties to transact business with. And so that's something that our customers can put into a portfolio and really look in a comparative way how different vendors stack up. So you can sort of tier them and think about, you know, what does that counterparty risk look like across your vendor portfolio? The second and, and sort of natural use case that emerged out of that is assessing a company's own performance, right? So you're the CISO of a company or another leader that's responsible for security, and you want to understand what does your company look like to others and what are the underlying findings and observations that BitSight sees and how does that performance stack up over time? And then your team can go ahead and optimize your results by fixing issues and developing different strategies about how to manage cybersecurity risk around these issues. And that's another way that we see a lot of organizations using the platform. Many companies who use the third-party risk piece also use the self-performance piece, what we call security performance management. And they really have built a considerable ecosystem around this. And so those are really the two core use cases, but there are a number of other industry-oriented use cases for their cybersecurity rating in the platform as well. And these include things like insurance and insurance underwriting for cybersecurity, where we're seeing many, many insurance underwriters and brokers use the BitSight rating and the underlying analytics to help make better underwriting decisions. And that could be part of the modeling. It could be part of the decision workflow. It could be both. But we see this as a significant use case that's really emerged over the last few years and obviously become even more important given the last two years from a attack and ransomware perspective. 
We also have critical national infrastructure customers who take the ratings about individual companies and organizations, but want to roll them up into more of a national view to understand what is the exposure at the country level, how might different cyber events affect the country itself, and, and how they can work with uh, private companies to help improve things for the overall country over time. We're now seeing this kind of branch into other areas, credit obviously one where we've been working very closely with Moody's to understand how these types of ratings can be used in helping credit analysts better understand cybersecurity risk. And even on the corporate governance side, where we have a recent partnership with Glass-Lewis and now include the cybersecurity rating from BitSight in some of the Glass-Lewis reporting. So we find that the original use cases, which were very security team oriented in nature because of the traction they've built over the last decade, are really expanding into these other market influencer use cases around governance and underwriting and credit and many of these other areas. And obviously, your offerings have expanded greatly since 2011, responding to the marketplace and how it's matured. We often hear that a lack of historical data is seen as an impediment for measuring cyber risk properly, either you know for underwriters or for other firms trying to measure their third-party risk management. So are you able at BitSight to develop metrics over time? And is that useful for insurance firms, for example, who are offering uh, cyber risk insurance? That's exactly right. The cybersecurity rating is a measure of performance over time, and it's because we have that rich 10-year history of doing this that we're really able to not only build a rating that has the benefit of seeing what performance looked like over a long period of time, but we're also able to do studies that help us, you know, sort of backtest and expand upon the linkage of the rating to things like bad outcomes. So we've done some of those studies which we've released externally both on our own and with other organizations like IHS Market and Verisk, to name a couple. I mean, that is something that the insurance underwriters are also interested in. How does this historical data really kind of, you know, look at that historical performance and how does the usage of that data, how might it sort of influence the potential for bad outcomes at companies that might be underperforming? Well, that's great. Let me shift a bit to what's currently happening. So Obviously, from malware to phishing to ransomware, cyber risk is constantly in the news. What are you currently seeing out there, and how would you currently characterize the uh, cyber threat landscape, if you will? Yeah, so clearly the threat landscape continues to rise, and, and there continue to be significant issues, both from an attack standpoint and a vulnerability standpoint. Let me just say something about vulnerabilities for a minute, which is, you know, Significant vulnerabilities uh, are something that we track at BitSight and something very interesting to our customers, you know, who are looking at third-party risk and looking at security performance management. And so when a critical vulnerability comes out, you know, that is something that we do operationalize in terms of being able to help people look at how they might be impacted, how their supply chain might be impacted, or even how their country might be impacted. And if you look back on the last uh, you know, couple of years, just take the last few months, for example, we've seen significant vulnerabilities out there in the market. Log4j, one example, where there was a critical defect in a well-distributed piece of software. And that's not the only one that we've seen over the last six months to a year. And so when you couple that with the rise of ransomware that we've seen over the last two years, when you couple that with you know, some of the political issues that are going on in the world right now, I think what you see is just a continued 
this rise in the threat and attack landscape. And that's nothing new. I mean, we've seen that over the last decade, but clearly at a, a bit of an apex right now. So then how do the ratings, including also all your analytics, of course, how do they help firms strengthen their resilience at this landscape? Yeah, so it really goes back to that self-performance management, you know, and that's sort of that first party use case where organizations can use the rating to really assess what their external attack surface looks like. The rating is essentially a single value output that shows what that attack surface looks like and how it improves or declines over time. And so what companies can do is really get into the, into the sort of details of those underlying observations, which we collect into various risk vectors, and they can use those to optimize different parts of the organization's external attack surface. That could be things like the way they've configured encryption. It could be things like patch management. It could be other things like how they've secured their email infrastructure. So if you think about this, when we started this back in 2011, there were lots of research efforts going on where people were looking at various security issues and understanding, you know, what companies were doing around email security, what companies were doing around DNS security, how specific vulnerabilities were propagated across the internet. But those efforts historically were distinct, right? And they didn't necessarily link to specific companies. They were sort of whole-scale internet analysis of individual issues. And what we really started to do back in 2011 was capture this information using open source techniques and other sort of capabilities to scan the internet to sort of detect these issues. We really did two things. The first was start to capture them in a more time series oriented way so that we could look at them over time and understand how things changed over time. But the second thing, which I think is the most critical, was start to do attribution. Right? How do we find individual issues that are affecting internet assets and infrastructure and link them to individual organizations, companies, governments, et cetera? And that together is really what has formed this cybersecurity rating and allows us to really allow people to use it both as a measurement of performance, but also as a way to go into the underlying details and optimize their external attack surface and their security configuration to be able to raise that rating and show better performance over time. And that same thing then gets applied to the way they think about their third-party risk portfolio or the underwriting use cases or the credit use cases or the governance use cases. And for financial services firms in particular, also given your background at Moody's, how do you see the interaction between the public and private sector on the cyber issues? Do you think there are areas where there is room for improvement? There's always opportunities for the public and private sector to collaborate. I think, frankly, the financial services sector is leading the pack in this. This is a sector that has really been leaning in on collaboration with each other and with government for the last 20 years. If you think about the information sharing and analysis centers, which were really born in the financial services sector with the FSI SAC, this has been a tremendous mechanism for early sharing of intelligence across the financial services sector. There are many mechanisms for those organizations to share with government and back and forth. And that's been emulated by many other sectors now with health ISAC and retail ISAC. So 
When you look at financial services, it's really the PAC leader here. And I think when you look at sort of what DHS and CISA have been doing over the last couple of years with programs like Shields Up, this is really a positive thing that's been happening in the industry. And I think the financial services sector deserves a lot of credit for bringing this to the level it's at today. Oh, I agree with you fully there. I do also feel, though, that, you know, the cyber risk is a global threat, right? And so the adversaries often are in one jurisdiction, but they're attacking many jurisdictions, like we saw with WannaCry and NotPetya and recently uh, SolarWinds. And so how do you see the cross-border cooperation there? You obviously have clients all over the world. And are you seeing meaningful information and strategic sharing also between jurisdictions? Well, certainly we see that sharing is occurring, especially in, in Western countries across borders from an industry perspective. And uh, there, there is a, you know, a lot that's been put out there from a government or even a, a thought leadership perspective on the technology sector side that really has an impact cross-border. And so I, I think, you know, just like the attacks are global in nature and can proliferate and affect countries and organizations that may not be the intended target, that threat intelligence sharing on the part of the defenders is also, you know, fairly cross-border, both at the underlying technical level and at the national cert level. So although there are these sort of national certs and other centers for distribution of this information, they're highly collaborative and the threat intelligence services that are out there, both from a governmental perspective and a commercial perspective, I think are fairly open in terms of making sure that people who want to consume that information to use it for defense are able to. One of the most formidable cyber adversaries is obviously Russia, both in terms of state-sponsored attack capabilities, but also all the criminal gangs that are doing ransomware there. And we are taping this podcast in early May. And obviously, you know, it's been two months now since Russia has attacked Ukraine. And there's been a lot of concern about attacks on Ukraine spilling over borders or attacks by Russia on countries that support Ukraine. Have you seen any sort of uptick in cyber attacks over the last two months at all? Are you anticipating that or seeing that? So certainly at BitSight, we see that Ukraine and areas around Ukraine have seen an uptick in security events since the start of the conflict and even to a certain degree beforehand. And I think that's fairly uniform across different threat intelligence companies and other companies that are focused on analyzing the current events there with respect to cyber. In fact, there was a report released earlier last week from Microsoft, which did an analysis of some of the cyber operations and attacks that are related to the conflict in Ukraine. And I think that report identified about a little less than 250 attacks that were linked to the conflict in terms of Russian operations, and nearly 40 of them had some kind of kinetic result, whether it was to take out a certain infrastructure that might have been supporting an operation or, or to do some other harm. Um, so certainly, you know, we're seeing just from an event scale perspective, things increasing. Other organizations that are doing deeper research are seeing pretty significant linkage between physical and cyber operations and, you know, obviously a terrible and critical situation over there that is testing not only the resolve of the people in Ukraine and causing significant, you know, human impact there, but we're seeing that also manifest itself from a cyber domain perspective as well. And we've certainly already heard about the direct attacks on Ukraine. 
in terms of malware attacks and wiping data and attacking various government organizations there. And then there's been a lot of focus in the West on possible attacks on our own critical infrastructure here. And so that's obviously been a big concern for both the public sector and the private sector. How do you see the mature organizations preparing for attacks like this? Have you seen differences there? I think the West is is very well prepared for the attacks that are the result of unintentional targeting. You know, we've learned a lot from NotPetya. Organizations are resilient and have become more resilient, especially in the critical infrastructure sector and especially in financial services. Those, of course, are the sectors that have the most to lose in terms of a successful attack. But I think there's certainly been a significant amount of learning from that last set of attacks just a few years ago. I think when people are considering, you know, how do we prepare, you know, the first is, um, do you have a good analysis done about where your weak points are? I think that's an area where BitSight can help from an external perspective, but obviously that requires a full complement of internal tools as well and a very proactive program. The second is incident response exercises to, to make sure that you understand what your, what your plan is if and when you are affected. And the third is making sure that you have you know, data backed up in a, in a way that is resilient and secure against things like ransomware or other types of attacks that might be destructive in nature. The good news is there is a lot of information out there about how to prepare. I mentioned Shields Up before. This is an excellent resource. Uh, things like cloud providers offer um, very, very easy ways for organizations to back up their data in multiple places and secure it. And uh, it's up to every organization to have a response plan in place that allows you to operationalize uh, your resources and the, and the data backups that you have. Uh, when and if an event does occur. So I, I do think continuous vigilance is required, but um, there are lots of resources out there for organizations today. And again, something that I think has been led by the financial services sector and certainly other members of the critical infrastructure sectors in the U.S. One area, Derek, I wanted to come back to was third parties, which you mentioned earlier. Obviously, firms have a lot of third parties and supply chains and different counterparties, which are not officially part of their organization, but obviously inadvertently introduce risk into their systems. And how do you measure that third party risk and how do you help firms protect against it? Yeah. So the way that we think about third parties is just like any other you know, company, just like your, your own company, we provide a rating for that third party, which looks at that company the same way we would look at you know, your own company. And so it looks at those same underlying findings and observations, which we collect at scale from the internet, attribute to an individual company or one of your third parties in this case. We then uh, slice those up into risk vectors about different things like patching and email and other security factors. And then we turn that into a rating. So at the end of the day, the, the beginning of that process is very, very similar for a first party or a third party. And then what we do is we provide a set of tools that allow you to aggregate your third parties into different portfolios. A lot of people do this by risk level, right? So you might have a third party that is providing various office supplies and other materials, um, that's a very low level risk from an organizational relationship perspective. But you might have another supplier that's providing electronic equipment, whether it's laptops or printers or other things, that risk level might be slightly higher. 
And you might have another company that's providing software as a service for HR systems that are containing lots of personal information about your employees or maybe even your customers. And that's going to be a much higher level. And so what we can do is provide the mechanism for people to manage those third parties and understand them both at an individual level, but also in an aggregate level, and then provide some workflow to be able to help you make decisions about when you need to follow up with them, when they have a critical issue, are they tracking it effectively and managing it and giving you back information about when they've resolved that issue. And also in the vendor contracting process, we can be very, very helpful in understanding whether or not a vendor has some issues that you'd like them to resolve before you move forward with a relationship. So a very rich and robust third-party ecosystem here, which is, you know, really have the benefit of that 10 years of historical data and that very, very rich focus on third-party risk over the, the early days and, and continuing into the current days of the company. And many firms are probably also using similar third parties, the same third parties, you know, as their providers as well. That's exactly right. And, you know, there's also a, a deeper analysis of for, sort of fourth party relationships and downstream, which we can also help analyze and provide some interesting insights on. Oh, great. Yeah. So that gives firms lots of context, as you're saying, how they fit in versus what they're doing and how they're looking at third parties. I wanted, in closing, just to ask, Derek, when you're looking at sort of the most mature firms, are there any effective practices that you think are particularly pertinent for firms to protect themselves against cyber attacks that you can share with us? Yeah, so certainly making sure that you have the right effective incident response processes in place, I think, is critical. Making sure you understand what you're going to do in the event of a crisis that's driven by a cyber event and who's responsible for overseeing and resolving it. Uh, number two, making sure that you've got some security telemetry on all of your assets so that when you do have an issue, um, you can proactively alert on it and get information into the hands of the right people and provide forensics. And the third piece is just really making sure that you've got the right commitment from management to support and help with the objectives of the program. So these are the things that I think people ought to be doing to prepare. Those are great tips. Thank you so much, Derek. Thank you for coming on the podcast and for sharing your insights about BitSight, but also the cyber landscape more generally. I very much enjoyed our conversation and I look forward to seeing you again. Thank you. We thank everyone for listening to this podcast and we hope that you all stay safe and healthy. Please consider subscribing to the IF Global Regulatory Update, which comes out every two weeks on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts.